Welcome to another edition of Conversations with Creative Women. I'm Sandy Klein, cartoonist, writer, author, public speaker, curator, educator, activist. In other words, Liza Donnelly is one hell of a committed, creative, accomplished heavyweight. Briefly, Liza is a cartoonist and writer with The New Yorker magazine and a resident cartoonist at CBS News. A finalist for the Thurber Prize for American Humor, Liza is the author-editor of 16 books, including the acclaimed Funny Ladies, The New Yorker's Greatest Women Cartoonists and Their Cartoons. She's written and illustrated seven children's books for Scholastic and two for Holiday House. As a cultural envoy for the U.S. State Department, Liza's traveled around the world speaking about freedom of speech and women's rights. She's given TED Talks, spoken at the U.N., the New Yorker Festival, the Thurber House, the annual convention of the American Association of Editorial Cartoonists, the Omega Institute, Norman Rockwell Museum, the Museum of Cartoon and Comic Art. Liza is a charter member of Cartooning for Peace, an international project that aims to promote understanding around the world through humor and is one of the founding members of USA FACO, the U.S. chapter of the International Cartoonists Organization. She's also received a slew of honors and awards, and her work can be found in the Library of Congress Prints and Drawings Collection, the Society of Illustrators Collection, as well as private collections. Last but certainly not least, Liza is married to New Yorker cartoonist Michael Maslin. So let's meet and get to know Liza Donnelly. I am so excited to have you here remotely with me. Oh, thank you for having me. It's a, it's a pleasure. I often ask this of my accomplished guests, and so I certainly am going to begin this way with you. What does this make you feel like when you listen to me rattle off all this stuff? <laughs> it is a little odd, I have to say. Does it overwhelm you? I, how much you've done it, in your yeah, life? Yeah, I don't. I there's so much more to do, though, Sandy. <laughs> no, it does. It kind of overwhelms me. It kind of like I did that. I did all that. It just was. I just was doing what seemed right at the time. Just I'm, I work a lot. I work all the time. I enjoy working. I, I love what I do, and I just just opportunities presented themselves and I take them. So sometimes opportunities come up in front of people and they just sort of don't know what to do with them. I guess like most of mm. my other guests, you must have a very strong sense of self. I think being a cartoonist since I was seven has given me that. Yeah. I mean, I started <laughs> drawing when I was little. And so uh, it's, it's part of who I am being a cartoonist and commenting on the world. So I think, yeah, I think I do have a sense of self in that regard in my, in my creative world. Not, that's not to say I'm insecure about many other parts of the world. But also, I'm, I'm, not a, I'm not afraid to uh, take chances for some reason. My father taught me that. He just was, uh, he, he, liked, he liked to take adventures and he taught me that. He taught me to try things. And being a cartoonist also involves well, any creative field involves a lot of rejection. So I learn it doesn't, it, you never get used to it quite, the rejection, but you learn to accept it and move on to the next thing. So how do you feel about those four words strung together? Don't take it personally. Um, that's a good, those are, those are good words to keep in your brain. Um, I mean, sometimes you, you can't help but take it personally because you drew the thing or you wrote the thing. Right. And it's your idea. Um, however, whoever's, whoever is, is judging you is just one person or a group of people. 
mm-hmm. and they may just think differently than you do. So you have to try to feel good about what you have created um, and, and move on or, or take their advice, take a little, little bit of that criticism and, or, or a lot of it and mm-hmm. uh, move forward. Mm-hmm. Go back in time with me. You said you started to draw when you were seven years old. So that was basically a very natural act for you. Take us on your creative trajectory. Okay. Um, well, I was a really shy kid, a really quiet child. And so I think I was drawing from the get-go, from what I've been told. And um, as a way to be by myself and draw and, and uh, enjoy being alone or being quiet. And then when I was seven, my mother gave me a book of cartoons by uh, James Thurber. Mm. And uh, I was homesick from school, I think. And I knew she loved The New Yorker. We had The New Yorker around the house. So I started tracing these, these drawings, which is a good way for kids to learn to start drawing or creating is to mimic other people's styles. And it made her smile, made my mother smile. So I was hooked from then on, that this is something that I enjoyed doing. And I eventually got my own style, but it's very Thurber-based. If any of your listeners know James Thurber mm. and they look at my work, they, they will probably see the similarity. Although I, I'm, he was a master. So, uh, yeah, so then I, I just kept drawing. And uh, it was a way for me to communicate with, with my mother, make her happy, and my father as well. And then my classmates, I kept drawing in school. And I, was, I became the kid who was the artist, the artist in the class, you know, the person that uh, was off drawing in the black notebook. And it was great for me because I was, uh, again, I said, quiet and shy. Mm-hmm. And I was also, um, didn't really fit into any group of people. I liked, I, I was, this is in the 60s, mind you. So it, a lot of stuff was going on at the time in terms of, the hippies. I was not a hippie, but I was. I benefited from that. I, I was not a girly girl, so I could just be the artist. I could just right um, identify myself as the artist. And uh, around that time, also, as I said, it was like the civil rights era and the, the women's second wave of feminism and Watergate. And I grew up in Washington D.C. in the middle of a lot of this stuff, <laughs> and it made me uh, <laughs> put it mildly. Yeah, it made really. me want to. I think that's where I started to think I wanted to do something with my ability to draw. And I looked at the prominent cartoonists at the time were Gary Trudeau, who draws Doonesbury, right. if any of your listeners remember him, right. and uh, a man named Herbert Block, Herb Block for the Washington Post. So I saw them doing things with their cartoons that, that were provocative and insightful and political and cultural commentaries and also, actually, Peanuts, uh, Charles Schultz did some political commentary, very, very, very uh, sort of guised, sort of, mm-hmm. but very, but political mm-hmm. nonetheless, if you remember. Mm-hmm. So I loved him too. And um, I just, I began to think that I wanted to do that. I was not the kind of person that would go on a picket line or go, go demonstrate. I just would, I wanted to do something with my drawing. Not having that ability, Liza, I, I have to ask you how that's married with the drawing and the quote commentary, what mm-hmm. comes first? How does that work? I'm fascinated by it. So on the money, man. And it's, <laughs> Thanks. what's the word? It's, it's simple. That's not an insulting word. No, no, I love simple. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Explain how, how that comes together. Oh, it's, I don't know, Sandy. It's, it's a little hard to explain. And, and half the time we, meaning 
those of us who do this don't really know where it comes from or how you get to where you do. But um, mm-hmm. it sounds like a cop out. Well, it's a natural uh, act for okay. you. So maybe. Well, it's it's not easy. It's not easy. I mean, you have to uh, you have to work at it. So it doesn't come just doesn't come out. So you what you do is you you sit at your desk with a blank piece of paper like writers do or, or artists, and you. Um, what I do is I sit and I doodle, and I also pull pull words out of the newspaper or you know I look online now, but um, mm-hmm. tr- trends. I use I listen to myself think. I I I'm always always observing. I'm always listening to the culture and to the politics here and abroad. So you know what's going on, like you and you hear words. Like there's a cartoon I did that uses the word niche, and that's a common word. But it, at the time I drew that cartoon for the New Yorker niche was being used a lot in politics mm-hmm. so i use it and it and it has nothing to do with politics but the, the woman is using the word niche or uh the war on women i use that in a cartoon because that was being bannered about or i will take you know after 9 11 i did a cartoon that was very important to me to be able to do that because i thought i was going to quit cartooning after 9 11 mm-hmm. um i didn't know how to be funny anymore but i sure. did this cartoon that sort of to me uh expressed the zeitgeist of the time of the, of the US. It's a little girl saying to her uh, father, "Daddy, can I stop being worried now?" Hmm. So it's not funny, but it's it's yeah. Oh, it but it's speaks, powerful. Yeah, it speaks to the time. So anyway, so I sit with that paper and I draw and I doodle and I gather what's going on and I try to uh, pair them together, the words with the with the trends or with the topics or with or daily life, marriage. You know, you can put political political ideas into a marriage or to a relationship. Um, hmm into your pets, you know, so you mix it all up and you hopefully come up with a cartoon. Did you know that you were funny? Oh, wow. No, I didn't think, I I mean, I knew from those early days when I would draw people for my mother or my classmates, I knew that I had the ability to make people smile by my drawings of people, you know, or of Mm -hmm. things. And these, I don't mean these are these are things that come out of my imagination, not not from life necessarily. So I knew I had that kind of funny in me, and, I, and my father was a very uh, sarcastic, not sarcastic, uh, sardonic sort of mm-hmm. um, loving, but uh, had a wry look at the world. And I think I got that from him. And my mother was funny too. Mm-hmm. So um, it's a it's a quiet funny. It's not a. It's, I'm not a stand up. Although I've tried stand up comedy, I'm not. I'm not good at it. That's what's so engaging about your cartoons. And God knows I could cite 400 million examples, but I picked out three just because mm-hmm. of two women lunching. And the caption is, I want to stay friends, but not in the same book club. And you just go, yes. <laughs> yeah, The other one is of a little girl sitting on the floor with all this crap around her books and games all this shit and her mother just comes in and says pace yourself honey you're only three yeah (laughs) and and the irony of that was a couple of weeks ago i interviewed rosemary trujillo who is the senior vice president curriculum at sesame street and uh, she oh it was really fabulous and she's written a book and talking about raising young children from basically birth to five and the mm-hmm. expectations that we have for them that are erroneous. Mm. Like for example, yeah. a mother of a two-year-old saying, my child doesn't share. I have to teach my child yeah. how to share. You know, and Rosemary was saying, that's not in a two-year-old's wheelhouse. Yeah. <laughs> and so 
oh, wow, mm. I didn't realize that. But I, so I see your cartoon and it was just like, no kidding. And yeah. my other my other one in the same, not the exact same vein, but a woman sitting at her, putting on makeup at her mirror <laughs> and her husband standing behind her, obviously they're getting ready to go out. And she just says, I think I'd look better without you. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> no, no, laugh at them because you're just like, yes. And that's the the joy for the reader of connecting with you. You have it. Yes, I can. I relate. You relate to me. What a wonderful feeling. Oh, thank you. That's great. Yeah, those are those are three of my favorites too. And you know, the the kid thing, it's like that was that's what that's what's going on. The the woman, the mother there has given the child all these things to do, right? <laughs> right. And that's and then she says, Well, we stop, you know, wait, hold on, you know, you're overdoing it. So Well, as Rosemary said some of that, I thought to myself, I'm sure I was really guilty of that with my sons, but whatever. Oh, sure. Yeah. Let's get a little political in the sense that there what was that like and or does it continue to be for you to be a woman cartoonist. Mm. You're not that ubiquitous, are you? What do you mean by that? Well, are there tons of women cartoonists? We oh. certainly know Ross Chast. Mm-hmm. What did that feel like for you sort of back in the day when you were Yeah, starting? so, yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's something I've given a lot of thought about and I wrote a book about it, the Funny Ladies book about women cartoonists. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I'm actually writing a sequel, by the way, since that book came out. 2005. It's time for a, an update. So what did it feel like? I, when I was in my 20s starting out, I didn't think about gender. I didn't think I was a woman cartoonist. Uh, and I still don't, actually. I think of myself as a cartoonist who okay. happens to be a woman. And I, that's, I just wanted to be a cartoonist. I didn't, I didn't think anything about being a woman uh, in that regard. Mm-hmm. And I was a feminist. I was thankful to Gloria Steinem and, and the second wave and, and for, for making the changes that they did so I could do what I wanted to do. But I, it wasn't until later that I noticed that there were not many of us. So mm-hmm. at the New Yorker, when I started in the se- late 70s, Roz Chast was already there. She had joined just like a year earlier, I think. And a woman named Nurt Carlin and another woman had just started named Roz and Ango. And so there, that, there were only four of us out of maybe... 30, 40, 50 men. I don't remember the numbers. Oy. So that's, that was the proportion. And, but to add to that, before Nurt Carlin, she, she died recently. She was a woman from Israel and lived in, in New York. Before her, uh, in the 60s, there were no women cartoonists. So there'd been a period of time when nobody at the New Yorker was contributing cartoons from the female perspective. Mm. And, um, that said, though, in the, in the 20s, when The New Yorker was founded in 1925, there were women drawing cartoons for them. Many people may remember or have heard of Helen Hokanson and Mary Petty, who were two of the more well-known ones. So The New Yorker's been accepting of it, but I think, I mean, I have a whole favorite. I don't know if you want to hear all this. I but do. I have a lot yes, of, go oh, for okay. it. All right. So in the 20s, right after the women received the right to vote, there was an upswing, particularly in the cities, of of enthusiasm, women wanting to have jobs and sort of feeling a little bit of freedom. And, and that was true of the art. So, and the New Yorker, when it was started, was started by uh, Harold Ross and his wife, Jane Grant, and they were just looking for the best artists in the city at the time. And um, that included women. So there's some uh, classically trained illustrators and cartoonists, and they hired them. And then the New Yorker got very popular. And, and in the, after the Depression and then heading into World War II, these women that had been with the magazine, there were maybe eight or 10 of them coming and going, still very low numbers compared to the men. 
they started to disappear. They either died or they went off and got married and had children. They didn't cartoon anymore. And then, and then after World War II, there was a, a push in our country for conformity, right? And being a cartoonist or even being funny was something that women were not supposed to do. We were or not encouraged. Con- yeah. Right. And the humor in the fifties, you can imagine was, was pretty sexist. So, uh, why would a woman want to be a cartoonist and get involved with that? So it wasn't until the seventies after the second wave of feminism, I think where things started to open up more and the, and the new cartoon editor started and I interviewed him for my book and he's the one that brought me in. And he said, I wasn't looking for women cartoonists. He said, I was looking for new ways to express humor. And if you look at that time period in the magazine, there's a lot of creative cartoons, a lot of interesting ways of approaching humor. And so I always felt, and I'm not the first person to, to think this, feminist theorists will say that if you open the door to what's considered good in any field, if you make it broader or more inclusive of different ideas, you'll get more diversity. And that's, that's what happened in cartooning in the 70s. So, mm-hmm. And now that we're in 2020, mm-hmm. what's your assessment? It's gotten so explosive with women cartoonists now. I think the internet has helped with that, that more women are trying their hand and publishing online. And the New Yorker has a robust online site, has a lot of graphic narratives and a lot of cartoons. And um, they have a new cartoon editor and she's a woman. Ah. So that, I mean, that's not to say that she will automatically buy women cartoonists, but she, right. I think she was given the task by David Remnick to get more diversity, to try to redress that balance in terms of uh, race and gender. And, and she's doing it. So there's more women at The New Yorker than ever before. Oh, that's terrific. Mm-hmm. I read something about your starting to draw on an iPad and that mm-hmm. how you can immediately post on social media. How has that impacted your work and your life? Oh, tremendously. It's been a huge addition to my, my work. I really like social media. For some reason, I took to it like a duck to water. I I, uh, like Twitter. I like Instagram. And so I do these drawings on my iPad, and I started doing it about six years ago. And I started out drawing events from my television, like the State of the Union address. I would draw what I saw in these rough and crude kind of colorful drawings and put it out on Twitter and with a little bit of commentary. And it's a way to to have a conversation with my followers. And it, and it became pretty popular that people liked seeing an event through my eyes, through my mm-hmm. drawings. And mm-hmm. um, I started doing it more, did it with the Oscars. And now I've been, been to the Academy Awards four times now uh, in person. So now I get hired to go places and draw events. And so it's like a visual journalism drawing what I see in real time. And there's also added to that, those kind of event things. I've been to the White House. I've been to the Grammys, the Oscars, the women's marches, the inauguration. It's really fun. I sometimes will do a political cartoon on my, on my phone, even not my iPad. If I don't have my iPad with me, I'll just, if something hits the news and I want to comment on it, I just do the drawing and put it out there. Like when Bill Cosby was sentenced, I heard about it. I was on the subway. So I did a drawing on my phone and put it out on social media. And, And then it got picked up by Ms. Magazine and it was published there. So it's a way to use the internet as a as a a tool to have a conversation with the world with with my followers and that's that's how i see cartooning is it's really a conversation but it's such a powerful vehicle 
and 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 mm. the immediacy of it makes it even more potent. Yeah, that you see it and you do it, and it's out there. Right, and people like seeing like if if they can't get behind the scenes at the Academy Awards, I'm there, and they can they can they can see it through my through my drawings and through my commentary. I sometimes use the camera. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And in fact, I wanted to tell you a little bit. I've been doing, since the pandemic, I can't go anywhere, although I'm starting to go places. I'm in New York now. I've been doing a live drawing thing at five every day on Instagram and then Periscope a little bit later, where I I say hello on camera and then I turn the camera, my phone around and put it in a device over my hand and I just draw for people and talk to them as I'm drawing. And, and it started out being not very uh, unscripted and it still is pretty unscripted. It's very unscripted actually talking about what's going on, what we're feeling, what we're sensing like the, with the pandemic. And then it, and then it sort of became about black lives matter. And I draw political cartoons. I'll draw just a drawing about the, the healthcare workers that are on the front lines and talk about them. So it's a way to connect with people and, um, and people tell me they really enjoy it. They like to come and they love, they love watching people draw. So it's very calming for some, some people. So I do that every day and I'm still doing it. I'm going to continue doing it wherever I am. It's a real joy. Talk about the politics of this. I mean, and, if, and it's so cool to get political, if you like. I mean, where we are today, we, we talked about COVID and we've talked about Black Lives Matter. But what about the overall politics of this? Where does that leave you? Mm-hmm personally and professionally? It's a struggle in a way. I've been doing political-like cartoons since the 80s and um, for The New Yorker. And those, if you know The New Yorker, they're very, they're sort of quiet, mm-hmm. most of them. Not, not now, but when I started, they were very quiet. So my, my political take is very observational and quiet and thoughtful, and I don't want to bother anybody. I don't want to hurt anybody. But that said, as in the last... Ten, eight years or so, I um, and and then I did a lot of feminist cartoons, which is I'm passionate about. That mm, mm. And that's a whole other thing. The internet opened up that for me. I started doing much more political cartoons about global feminism. Uh, but with political issues now, when Hillary Clinton ran for president the first time, I wanted to really comment on what was going on, and I did more and more political cartoons commenting on the candidates. And and then when Donald Trump ran for president, I, I got even stronger with my voice online. It's not for the New Yorker, it's for online sites and for my column on medium.com, which is a great blog platform, if anybody knows it. That's where I publish all my photo cartoons. And I start pushing myself to be a bit stronger and, um, and voicing my opinions and, and during that 2016 election. Then when Donald Trump was elected, I was not happy. Um, I'm in that camp. I'm, I'm mm-hmm, a Democrat. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. But I thought I, I'm going to give him a chance. Maybe, I mean, you know, we, we know him living in New York. We know him. And we think, well, maybe he was once uh, more moderate. So I gave him a chance. I stopped putting him in, in little boy short pants, which I'd done <laughs> when he was running for office. Uh-huh. And I calmed down. I said, okay, let's just do cartoons about subjects, about issues, not about the man himself. Uh, so How long I, did I that last? Like, yeah, well, you know, a little bit, because I also felt, I started feeling that being, because people would say, do you, do you think it's, it must be really fun being a political cartoonist with the president the way he is, and I, it's, it's not, it's not fun. It's actually, uh, it's easy to draw, yes, but after a while, 
what what's the point of consecuting somebody? I think, and it divides the country even further. So I, I pulled back a bit. Now I'm back uh, pushing a little bit more. Um, my stuff on Medium and, and on the internet uh, is a little stronger. And uh, I still try to stick with the issues if I can, but I, I put I put him back in Little Boy Shortcuts. So, um, mm-hmm. yeah. So it's it's political cartoons are going through a lot of growing pains right now because the newspapers are dying and yeah. and, and, and uh, yeah. cartoonists are many cartoonists around the world are being arrested and, and threatened. So it's, yeah. it's a difficult time. But you have this very also very varied career, as I mentioned, in terms of being an activist as well as an educator. Talk about some of those other parts of your life. How did you become a cultural envoy for the State Department? The State Department has a program for speakers. Many of you may not know that, but and I didn't know it until one of my colleagues, a political cartoonist, wrote me and said, hey, did you know that they have this program and we have a bunch of editorial cartoonists are in, in the system at the State Department as available to travel to speak to groups abroad. And uh, I said, yeah, I'll do that. Of course, I love that. So I, they got in touch with me, and I you know, filled out tons of forms and became a, a, a an official speaker for the State Department. And I, I only went to three places for them, and this was back when Hillary Clinton was Secretary of State. And since then, I haven't been invited anywhere. I'm not sure why that is, but I don't know if any of our my colleagues have. I don't know. They may have stopped the program. But uh, I went to uh, Macedonia. And I hmm. went to Israel and uh, Palestine. It was fascinating. Hmm. Mm-hmm. What is it also like to be, and what does that mean, to be a resident cartoonist at CBS News? Hmm. Back during the uh, 2016 election, I, I approached CBS to see if they wanted me to live draw the uh, DNC, the Democratic National Convention. And the social media producer was really interested, so they hired me to go to the DNC. And from there, I would, I would go, you know, when that was over, we went to the inauguration, we went to the women's marches, and I would go and live draw for them. And I also would be in studio, in the green room, which is attached to the, to the set, so you mm-hmm. could see the camera in the green room. And I would draw the guests, I would draw the, the anchors, and uh, draw the control room behind the scenes, and then, and then go on assignments. So that's what that, that's what that was. It was fun. What a great thing to have, to be able to marry being an observer with your art. How terrific that must be. Well, thank you. I'm so pleased that the, that has taken this turn with the, with the live drawing. and I'm, I'm anxious to get back at it. Um, but just yesterday, I, I, I live part-time in the Hudson Valley and, and part-time in, in New York City. And I just came back to New York City for the first time in three months. Mm. Um, and uh, I'm so anxious to get back. And I walked through Times Square, and it was it was so uh, quiet and eerie, unpopular. Huh? Really it was eerie. eerie. Yeah, it was eerie. I mean, there are people there, and I'm sure three months ago it was much worse, but much much less popular. So I sat and I drew, and I and I went live. Um, there's a new app called Haps H H A P P S uh, that has in- invited me to dr- draw live for them, and um, and comment on what I'm seeing and drawing what I, what I see. And, can, and I did a drawing of Times Square while I was sitting there. And people can ask me questions and, and have a conversation with the people that are, that are watching this live broadcast. 
and then I, I did it later for, for Instagram. So it's it's a wonderful tool, and it's it's like an extension of what I've been doing for forty years with with the cartoons. Only it's with an iPad and and uh, social media. Has there ever been a time when you haven't felt particularly creative? That you hit a slump? Uh huh. Well, like I said, after nine eleven. Right, you did. Right. But it just comes back, and it's bigger than you are, isn't it, when you're an artist? If, yeah, I think it, for me it is now. At the time, I didn't think that way. I felt very confused. Like, what's the point? Because up until then, I'd been doing a few political cartoons, but most of the cartoons I'd been doing were slice-of-life cartoons for The New Yorker about food trends and, and relationship trends and sometimes politics, but not very often. And it just seemed like, what is the point of this? Why, why am I doing this? Mm-hmm. I, I know this. I know what the point is. And I, I think like uh, so many other people after 9-11, we just reevaluate our purpose. And, and that's what I was doing. And I, at that point, I decided I, w- I have to do more political cartoons. And lucky for me, the internet was exploding at the same time. So I got to publish my work sometimes for no money, but I got to get it out there on the internet. And that was great. Talk about this international project that I mentioned, Cartooning for Peace. How was that born? That's a, a really uh, important part of my life, too, although not, not actively right now. They're, for no particular reason, except they, they're focusing more on their work in France. So it began in 2005 or six after the Danish cartoon controversy, which you can look up, but there's a Wikipedia page about that. So there was a, uh, an editor in Denmark who decided to commission illustrators and cartoonists to draw a depiction or a cartoon about Muhammad. And this is in 2005. I remember this. Yeah. It was really controversial, really frightening. It was the first time we ever saw the word cartoon above the fold in the New York Times. It was like, what? Meaning it was, it was cartoon. We were beginning to understand that cartoons are powerful and they can be problematic in some, in many, in very serious ways. And this is what happened. Is the cartoons didn't do, these drawings of Muhammad didn't do a whole lot for a year or, or maybe six months. But then, because of the internet, they were, they were used by extremist groups to promote a lot of violence and, and cause a lot of destruction and death. And the cartoonist, one in particular, Kurt Westergaard, uh, has had to have a police escort ever since. Mm. So, right after that, the, the Secretary General of the United Nations, Kofi Annan, he loved cartoons anyway. He decided to have a, a day of cartoonists coming to speak about their work and about the importance of cartoons and, and our responsibility as cartoons. So um, that's how that started. And Jean Pantou is a French cartoonist for Le Monde, very famous in France. He and Kofi Annan decided to create Cartooning for Peace, which is an organization of international cartoonists, about 150 of us uh, around the globe of all countries, to do exhibits and panels and lectures about cartoons. And it's, it's not that we draw cartoons for peace, necessarily, but we draw cartoons about the world and about how cartoons can, can do good things and not necessarily cause problems. Mm-hmm. And I'm not saying that the cartoonists are at fault. I, I believe in freedom of speech, absolutely. But now, because of the internet, we have to we have to sort of think twice before we draw something that might cause problems. Right, right. You know what I'm struck by, Liza, about the depth of your work and the depth oh. of who you are. 
it all just seems to be such a natural act. I feel very lucky to be able to do what I do. So many people never find something that they love to do and, and can make a living at it. So, and I feel like I have a responsibility to do, to do good things with what I can do. You know? What has that been like in terms of your children's books? The Scholastic books began in the 80s, and uh, I had drawn a book, uh, a dummy, they call it the spec books, about a little, little boy and his, his love of monsters and his dog. And um, that became a series of dinosaur books with Scholastic. And um, that was, I'm trying to think of the motivation for that. It was, it was more just wanting to express about children's imaginations, I think. And, and um, nothing, nothing bigger than that, really. This little boy had a huge imagination about dinosaurs and a passion for dinosaurs. Mm-hmm. And the books are, I wanted them to be wordless, but they, Scholastic didn't agree with me, so they have very few words. So um, I, like, I like telling stories without, without words if I can, since I was so shy and very suspicious of words when I was young. <laughs> and then the other two books with, with Holiday House were, were actually written back in the 90s and then were not published you can find a home in, until much later an editor at Holiday House uh, approached me and I showed her these books and she said we'll, we'll do them both and they were, they were also about uh, about uh, imagination now that you how that you bring it up I never really connected all all the books together in that way about a child's imagination and how he or she should be true you know, should, should feel good about about having that imagination and, and, and feel positive about it yeah, the, the last two books, actually, I consciously made the protagonist a, a little girl. and Because I, I was now aware, like, I can do that, and I'm going to do that. So, and I do that in my cartoons, too. That's the joy of this. This is not some kind of a children's book that will give you diabetes, you know, because, oh, it's so sweet. And- <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I, I mean, one of them is, is sweet, but uh, not until the end. But it's, it's about a little girl finding what's at the end of the rainbow. Uh-huh. Well, I often wonder that too, even as an yeah, adult. Yeah. I would be remiss if we didn't talk about the fact that you're married to cartoonist Michael Maslin. <laughs> <laughs> Was that planned, Liza? <laughs> no. <laughs> no, no. But it's it's rare, although it probably won't be rare going forward because there's more women drawing cartoons now. Yeah, there's not many of us married cartoonists. Michael and I met at, at the New Yorker at an event for the New Yorker. So we'd already been published there, both of us. And so we knew each other's work. And um, he also was a descendant or a, a follower of Thurber from early on. So we, we be, our first date, quote unquote, was to go see a, a Thurber that was on auction here in New York. Mm-hmm. Didn't buy it. Couldn't afford it. Neither was <laughs> afford it. But uh, anyway, yeah, so it's fun. It's, it's great. It's, I mean, if you're going to do something difficult like tuning or writing or poetry or whatever, it's nice to have somebody that gets what you're going through. Mm-hmm. So you, you can complain and, and they can help you find a solution. Do you bounce ideas and work off each other or are you oh, basically independent? Uh, yeah, sometimes. Not often, though. What I meant by that was just somebody to help you with your career issues, not so much idea issues. Mm-hmm. Although, although I do seek his advice sometimes when I'm stuck. I was just going to ask you, do you give him a sample and say, what do you think of this? And might he say, that sucks? <laughs> uh, or vice versa? No, you you yeah, say that to him? Uh, not with the word sucks, uh, but, uh, but 
that's the thing is we both, we both have our weekly routines and we both come up with our weekly cartoons and usually don't show them to each other because it's, we're, you're very protective of your, of your weekly batch. We call them batches of six or eight cartoons. And if you show something to your spouse that is also cartoons and they don't react the way you thought they should laugh or smile or whatever, it ruins it for you. Um, oh, so I bet. We, we, hold, we keep our creative work close to the best unless you really need advice or like another ear, like, does this caption sound right? You think I should put this word at the beginning of the sentence or at the end of the sentence? And Michael is, oh, he's so prolific. He's, and he's a great wordsmith. So, Your cartoons, have they been personal? Yeah, sometimes. Indirectly and directly. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Actually, Michael and I did a book together called Cartoon Marriage. Huh. that came out, yeah, came out about 10 years ago. And um, it all... Sandy had almost made it into a sitcom. Didn't didn't pass. <laughs> <laughs> a script was written and uh, came get pitched and everything, but it didn't get picked up. Yeah. So the cartoons in that book, many of them are not personal because both Michael and I have done independently done hundreds of cartoons about marriage, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but each chapter has a graphic narrative that we wrote together about our personal lives. So um, it's very. Oh, I bet that's fascinating. Thank you. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, wow. Well, as we run out of time, I want to ask you, what would you like to do that you haven't already done? That's a great question. I know there's something out there. Uh, I I just want to continue doing this, the live drawing and, and reporting with my with my live drawing. Um, Sandy, I don't have a great... You don't have to. You don't one have to. thing. I mean, I, was, I, I want to go to Africa. I've never been to Africa. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to go to uh, Japan, Australia. I mean, these are places I want to visit. It's not really quite the same. Well, that's, really answering that's your question. A, it can be a bucket list and a wish list. That's okay. It doesn't have to yeah. be... You don't have to get paid to go to Africa. <laughs> true but i I do enjoy this reportage stuff with my pen and uh, i want to do more of that Mm -hmm. report about the world in a quiet way through through drawing i think the news can be so loud and so aggressive and so hard edged and as it should be in in many times but i think my sense is people are, are weary of that or they're tired of all the negativity and uh, they like seeing the news through a quieter approach, which is what I try to do. You know what, Liza, you offer us a very safe space. Mm. Thank you. Oh, thank you. That's why I don't want to be too hard edged with my politics because I think uh, it, it pushes, it pushes people away when you're, when you're too angry and too mean. And I don't, I don't want to do that. It adds to your versatility. I mean, you can mm. do that be comfortable, successful doing that. And then you can say, I think I'd look better without you. <laughs> it's just like, yeah, yes, damn it. And as I'm going over the cartoons and I'm kind of in my own space, I was transported. Oh, uh, that, great. And, and that's you. really oh, true. That's great. And so, <laughs> how's this? Oh. You're in the right field, woman. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's so good to hear. No, Sandy, that's so, that's so nice to hear. Thank you. Before we, and the Norman Rockwell Museum is, is mounting an exhibit of my work. Oh, 
they're opening sort of my work that's going to be virtual over the summer and, and open to some people in the, the Berkshires. It's up in Stockbridge, Massachusetts. They often have shows of different artists and cartoonists and illustrators, and they invited me to have a show of my work, sort of a retrospective of, of sorts, that's going to span the summer. And uh, I'm so honored and thrilled. I mean, Nolan Rockwell was somebody who did try to, to speak about the world in his art. He was a, a commentator in, in his illustrations. And uh, I can see the connection between what he was doing and what I, what I tried to do. Mm-hmm. commenting on the world as, as he saw it. So it's a great honor to have a, a exhibit there. Well, and well-deserved. Yeah, I'll be doing events with them all summer long. So, but thank oh, you. that's mm-hmm. great. Well, Liza, I really can't thank you enough. Thank you, Sandy. For taking your time out and transporting us and hearing all about who you are and what you do. And we're grateful for that. We really are. This was just a wonderful conversation. I really enjoyed it myself. Feel free to reach out, and if you'd ever like to come back, we'll do a part two. I'm game. Totally. Be happy to. That'd be great. Thank you. Join us for another edition of Conversations with Creative Women. I'm Sandy Klein.